Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of your word and your great love and mercy in Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we search your word that you would make yourself known to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, happy Mother's Day, everybody. It's an important day. Anybody know where Mother's Day came from? Who said Hallmark? All the moms said Hallmark. I'm glad to hear that because I'm off the hook. Uh, no, it was um, the Methodist Church in Fairmount, West Virginia. That's where, uh, that's where it started. The Methodists blame them for a lot of things. They started uh, Mother's Day. But we know that in our house, Mother's Day is every day, isn't it? Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? Speaking of trembling and fear, uh, actually, we're not going to talk about um, we're not going to talk about uh, leadership in the midst of the storm because I, I want to continue with what we stopped with several weeks ago in Acts chapter 24, where uh, Paul is brought before Felix uh, there in Caesarea Maritina, which is right there on the Mediterranean. And so, let's pick up chapter 24, verse 22. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he went for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. What a friend. The word of the Lord. Uh, well, it's pretty obvious that Paul is being strung along, but Paul is making the most of his time. Uh, I'm going to repeat a little bit of what I said because I think it was about a month ago when we were here. Uh, but Paul is in prison and he's eventually going to appeal to Caesar and he's going to sail for Rome. Uh, but while he's here, he's taking advantage of the opportunity and there's this strange role reversal that happens where all of a sudden, rather than Felix standing in judgment over Paul, Paul in chains in chains is standing in judgment over Felix. Because actually we were told what Paul preaches on, that he uh, speaks uh, in verse 25 uh, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Now, if you remember, uh, Felix uh, is with his wife, Drusilla. The problem is, is that Drusilla, wasn't that also the name of one of Cinderella's wicked stepsisters? So she's here in this story too. Uh, and... Um, so after, I guess, after Cinderella, she gets married to, Fes, uh, to Felix, and then, um, but she's actually married to somebody else, so she's committing bigamy. And she's, uh, she's married uh, to Felix and uh, with another husband that she just kind of up and left, who actually doted on her uh, at a significant level, but she just got tired of him and went to the next best thing. And so here is Paul preaching to these two about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Well, there's uh, some reading between the lines that can be done uh, on this because he may not actually have to say explicitly what's going on in their own personal lives, 
Uh, but clearly the sermon hits home because what's the response? Felix was alarmed and said, go away for right now. Uh, I can't hear anymore. And actually the Greek is more accurately translated as Felix trembled. Uh, he really didn't want to hear it. But we know that Felix has an accurate, a rather accurate knowledge of the way. We see that in verse 22. And the way is what they used to call Christianity. When was the first time Christians were called Christians? Antioch, Antioch that's right. Jerry Levin. There you go. Glad you got it. Uh, extra wafer for you uh, at the next communion service. Uh, that's right. In Antioch, they were first called Christians, but before the, it, Christianity was even articulated in, in that terminology, uh, they were called people of the way. And Felix has a, a, a knowledge of that. So he's at least interested in what Christianity has to say uh, to him. Uh, but all of a sudden, rather than taking on Christianity as an intellectual exercise, uh, he, uh, he's confronted with his own sinfulness. And all of a sudden... Paul goes from preaching to meddling, and Felix doesn't like it. I mean, one of the things that I think we often forget as Christians is that if you remember, if you had to take a Religion 101 class in college, uh, normally it was taught by the most antagonistic professor toward Christianity, if you remember that. And they've got a terminal degree more often than not. They've got a Ph.D. from someplace really smart. Uh, but what we forget to realize is that the most uneducated newly converted person to the Lord Jesus knows more of the Lord Jesus than someone who's been studying him his whole life and has never turned to them in faith. Full stop. So Felix is full of all this intellectual knowledge up in his head about what Christianity is all about, but it's never taken uh, what has often been described as the longest journey on the face of the earth, the one foot between the head and the heart. It's never actually sat down and become real to him. And even in this day and age, we have people who really do see Christianity as a solely intellectual pursuit, and it really has no uh, effect on their lives. I had a guy that uh, came into my office once who since left Birmingham, so I can talk about him now. Uh, I won't mention his name. Uh, but this is the same guy who uh, came in and he said, look, I don't really think much of Jesus. I don't even know what to think of Jesus. I study Christianity but I'm a young lawyer at a firm in town, and I feel like if I join the Advent, it'll be good for my career. And um, it wasn't. He got fired, uh, and so he left town. Uh, but what he always wanted to talk to me about uh, were the intellectual hang-ups that he had for Christianity. And I don't think that we ought to brush those under the rug. So when someone comes to you and asks you a really hard question, like, why this? Or there seems to be an inconsistency here. I don't think that it's the right answer to say, well, just have faith in Jesus and you'll be fine. Don't worry about that. Now, on the other hand, a lot of times when people come to me and say, I have this intellectual hang-up about something, that's not what's waking them up in the middle of the night. Right? They're, they're not sitting and you know, waking up in the middle of the night worrying about uh, whether or not the, uh, the world was actually created in literal six days uh, or whether it was figurative language. Uh, what wakes them up in the middle of the night is what they really need to be talking about and what Christianity is solely aimed at. Right? So the thing even, and original sin is evenly distributed. It's very easy for us to look back on early Christians or even forget Christianity, uh, people from long ago, and to think, well, we know better now. You know, we, we, we have more knowledge, we have more ability. Uh, certainly we have greater technology and, and certain accessibility. I, I read something the other day where a sociologist said that we learn more in one day 
as technological people than some previous generations have learned in a lifetime. Because right? it's, it's, it's all there at your fingertips. Now the problem is, is how many of us are actually able to remember anything that we've read recently? Because right? you're sitting at the dinner table, and I'm guilty of this too, and you're trying to think of a name of a song or a television show or some factoid, and so immediately you break out the phones and you Google it, and you're like, oh, of course, it was whoever it was or, or that, and then you put it down. Two days later, you won't remember that. All right, two days later. So we're being, but we're all being barraged by all of this information, uh, and actually very little of it is settling in. But original sin is evenly distributed. So it doesn't matter what year you walk the face of the earth, what your station in life might be. Uh, it's not that previous generations were more righteous or more sinful, and the same thing to be true about successive generations, that we're all struggling with the same things. And you see this in the Gospels and the way that it works out. So, for instance, what you see in the ministry of Jesus, one of the things that's so appealing about it is how many of us can relate to some of those stories. Because we see ourselves in those stories. And in our changing circumstances in life, all of a sudden our eyes are open. A story that took on a whole new meaning for me, and it was the first time I preached after Lily was born, and it was the woman with the issue of blood. Remember that? Where Jesus gets, gets out and someone in the crowd uh, touches the hem of his garment, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples kind of mock Jesus and say, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. You know, it's, it's just, well, I've... You know, I felt that someone has touched me. And then there's a woman with the issue of blood. But now what happened before that incident? When Jesus first got off the boat, what happened? Jairus' daughter. Jairus sends for Jesus because his daughter is on her deathbed. And while they're going through, on their way to Jairus' house, this woman who had suffered for the issue, with the issue of blood for a number of years stalls Jesus and so that by the time he gets to Jairus' house, what's happened? She's dead. Now, I'd never thought about it from the perspective of Jairus. I always thought, what a wonderful story about the woman who had been healed with the issue of blood. And now that I've got a baby, I'm thinking, I don't like that woman. Because she got in the way, the daughter's now dead. So y'all are all rejoicing about this woman being healed. She could have dealt a little bit longer with it because Jesus didn't show up. Jesus didn't show up, now my daughter's dead. Now, of course, in God's time, it's, it's not restricted in the same way ours is. And God raised uh, Jairus' daughter and said, give her, give her something to eat. Uh, but, you know, those stories, even though they happened 2,000 years ago, uh, they suck you in. They really do, because you all of a sudden begin to realize that, that the things that they're struggling with, your, your, what do you do with uh, your kids? Uh, and not just little kids. I mean, the parable of the prodigal son. Got one son. He's really great. Stayed at home. Took over the family business. Upright. Really wonderful. And I got another one who moved to Montana. And who knows what he's up to up there. Uh, every once in a while, he asked me for money. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, I had a, a parishioner in Beaufort. Uh, it was a really wonderful lady and a lot of fun to be around. And uh, she had a son who actually had a Ph.D. from Princeton. And uh, she got on the phone and called me at the office one day, and she said, well, Andrew, I just feel like you could really relate to him, and uh, he's really smart, but I'm just going to tell you, he's useless. He's useless. He has no direction in life. He's the most educated, 
dim-witted person I've ever met in my life, and I love him, and he's my son, but can you just meet with him and talk with him and see if you can help him? And I said, well, Kitty, I'd be honored and uh, be, I, I, if, if he's willing. He'd, I'd love to talk to him. She says, well, just hold on. He's right here. And she, uh, she handed the phone. Uh, his name was Paul. He's a good guy. Yeah, so I, and I told him, I was like, I'm really sorry. Uh, but, but, uh, but, but then all of a sudden, you know, I think of it, she's thinking parable of the prodigal son, but he's thinking, you know, uh, the, the mother of the, uh, the James and John, remember when she comes to Jesus and she says, I want one of my boys at your left hand and another one at the right. I mean, so he, all of these things are, relate today, uh, which is why I think that not just because the Holy Spirit is working through God's Word, which He is, uh, but uh, it's alive and active because it speaks to us even today. And so these uh, ancient words uh, really uh, address us uh, where they are. And they're real and they're honest. These are, there are aspirational parts of the Bible. So you get to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. Uh, blessed are the hungry. All those types of things are definitely aspirational. But even in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus has a way of just hitting the nail right on the head of, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries on its own. I mean, that is one of my great sins, is worry. And someone here at the Advent gave me some very good advice once, and that is, worrying is praying to yourself, thinking that you have to be totally in control. And Jesus uh, addresses that issue. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't uh, address every single issue under the sun, and yet uh, he really does, more often than not, uh, get to the heart of the matter. And that marks Paul's preaching too. So Paul would preach in context. So when he would go to a place, he wouldn't say, okay, I preached on Acts, now this is where I condemn myself, I preached on Acts 24 last week, well, I guess it would be, last week because he's going to continue Acts, so that doesn't really work. Uh, but I'm going to tell you about this passage uh, from Scripture, from, say, Isaiah, and I'm going to keep working through Isaiah till I get to the end. What did he do? He looked around and said, what kind of people am I dealing with here? So when he's up on Mars Hill in Athens, what does he preach on? Right. You have a temple in your city to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you who that unknown God is. He's not just one God. He's the God above all gods. His name is Jesus Christ. Uh, so he's, he's putting it in context, and here he does the same thing. And he goes right to the heart of the matter, and he's preaching a sermon for two people, for Felix and Drusilla. And that's just it, that the desire of a preacher, and even though this sounds awful, is to preach to you and not to simply present a or preach a sermon before a congregation. Sermons ought to be in particular context. Now that doesn't mean that when, you know, someone comes into my office or if uh, I, you know, if I feel like I have an axe to grind that I should hammer away at it in a sermon. I really try hard not to do that kind of thing. And the lectionary keeps us from doing that, right? So I, you know, like this morning, I really would have liked to have preached a Mother's Day sermon. And I could have told, you know, I could have actually tried my hardest. I would have mutilated the text. But I could have said, Stephen gives us a very good example of how we want to treat our children sometimes and how we treated his mothers, right? That's terrible. That would be really awful and, and not an okay thing to preach on. Charlie's laughing because he feels it. Saying, I spoke to you, Charlie. Uh, but 
As much as I would want to preach on a Mother's Day theme, uh, that's not what God gave us in our text this morning. He gave us uh, Stephen uh, in Acts 7, and he gave us uh, Jesus uh, in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And yet, it is to a particular congregation. I have a very hard time preaching in front of congregations I don't know. I just, I don't feel any connection. Uh, if I don't know people, it's very weird and awkward because I feel like when I preach at the Advent that there's actually a conversation going on. It may not be spoken, uh, but whether you know it or not, you're talking back to me. And uh, now sometimes you're saying, wrap it up, <laughs> wrap it up. There were a couple of you this morning, uh, and, and I, thankfully you were gracious. I said, give me a couple more minutes. Uh, uh, but I can, you know, I mean, I can tell whether you are off uh, in la-la land or whether you're engaged. And look, I don't, I don't judge you while I'm up in the pulpit for that because, in fact, oftentimes somebody will say something in a sermon and it'll strike something in my mind. Does this ever happen to you? And all of a sudden you just start dwelling on that. And then all of a sudden you get back into the sermon and you think, where in the world are we? And so then you just start thinking about your grocery list and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but... Uh, Oftentimes, too, how we listen to a sermon, looking at Felix and Drusilla, that there is a way in which what's being said is making itself known intellectually, but it's not translating itself emotionally. It's not becoming a matter of the heart. It's something that you're just sort of like, well, that's something to chew on uh, throughout the week, but actually doesn't sink down deep. But here's the thing. You never know when that moment is going to happen, when the penny drops. And I'm not just talking about conversion, uh, but there have been messages that I've preached where I've thought, that was not good. It just wasn't. And I actually had a woman one time come out of the uh, congregation and say, God's, and I thought it was an ish sermon, and she said, God spoke so clearly to me today because of your sermon. She said, you quoted this hymn. And she started to quote the hymn. I'd never heard of that hymn in my life. I'd never heard it. And so I thought, is she losing it? What's going on here? But actually what had happened is she thought she had heard it, but something I had said had sparked something in her heart and her mind that made her think of that hymn. And she actually heard Jesus say to her the words of that hymn because something that was said in the sermon and the penny had dropped. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, I, I give uh, certain people a hard time about when I go to churches that, um, that have a worship leader. You know, the guy, normally his guy has some sort of interesting facial hair and a guitar and gel. And, and, um, and I've got a lot of friends who do this. I've got a lot of friends who do this. But, but when they start saying that they're a worship pastor, I can get behind. But when they say they're a worship leader, I say, you know, that's, that's not right. Jesus is our worship leader. And we look at Hebrews 11 and we see that, that there is Jesus leading worship. Uh, before uh, the great uh, throne, uh, the very worship that is given uh, to him. And I wonder if we don't lose that, but it was felt by Felix and Drusilla, and it made them tremble, that when we gather together as the family of God, as the body of Christ, we actually get caught up in the heavenly worship. This is why in our communion service we say what? Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Why? Because we're entering into the worship that is actually going on right now in heaven, and we join. And it doesn't happen all the time. It, we don't experience it all the time. 
uh, when, you know, regardless, I mean, who knows what it is. And the other thing I've realized is it's not, when those moments have happened, it's not because of a particular worship style or that there may have been anything necessarily memorable about the service, but you were still caught up in it. You were still caught up in it. And you encountered God in a very real and tangible way because you were in His presence. And that's not something that can be manufactured. Uh, it's something that, yes, is felt, uh, but that's the opportunity that we have any time that we gather together. That's why Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst of them. And He doesn't mean that in some you know, sort of uh, nice way. He really means I am in the midst of you. I'm present in your worship. And so Felix and Drusilla, or at least Felix, I believe, felt it. But his response was what? Out of here. I'm totally out of here. And there's actually two stories in the gospel that illustrate this. Very, very similar and intentionally so. Do you remember when Jesus first met Simon Peter and they went out and uh, they're coming in from the night, uh, from fishing, and Jesus says, well, let's go back out. And what does Jesus know about fishing? I'll show you. Fine, you want to go out? We're going to go out. And they cast their nets on the other side of the boat, and they pulled up so many fish that what? Simon Peter falls on his face before Jesus and says, Woe be unto me. Depart from me, is what he says. For I am a man of unclean lips. Get as far from me as possible, because when I'm in your presence, it makes me feel small and insignificant. I'm getting claustrophobic. I feel like things are closing in, so I need you to get away from me as far as you possibly can. Fast forward that. After the resurrection, all of a sudden, they do what they do. They're out fishing, and there on the seashore is this man yelling, have you caught anything? Man, caught a thing. Cast your nets on the other side. And what happens? Same thing happens. And one of the funniest lines in the Bible is where the others are pulling things in and trying to get... Peter just jumps in the water, right? He just, he just jumps in. Uh, and I won't go into detail of what it's like when he jumps in, but he jumps in and he swims as fast as he possibly can knowing that it's the Lord. Same circumstances, but two totally different reactions. What happened? How did Peter go from saying, depart from me for I'm a man of unclean lips, experiencing the same situation and actually saying, my Lord and my God, I'm going make, I'm, I'm to make a fool of myself to get to you as fast as I possibly can. Well, what changed was it went from here to here, right? The gospel penny dropped for Peter. And so he no longer felt small and insignificant, but realized his own significance in Jesus Christ. That that's who his identity was in. And so rather than Jesus' holiness pushing him away and causing him to tremble in fear. Peter did everything in his power to get as near to Jesus as he possibly could. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't awkward situations with Jesus because immediately following we find Peter being reconciled to Jesus. Remember that? You denied me three times and so I'm going to reconcile you with feed my sheep. And there are going to be awkward times but when the penny drops when you understand the nature of the gospel and the goodness and love and mercy of Jesus Christ, you're no longer repelled by Him. You no longer tremble 
in an unrighteous fear, but you try to get to, as close to Him as you possibly can. Now, unfortunately, there are many people in our world today that are not trembling with fear. They're not trembling at all. They're just completely apathetic to Christianity. They just don't see uh, how it makes uh, any difference uh, whatsoever. In Birmingham, it's often seen as just a cultural consideration. Uh, but you still do see it. And one of the things that really, uh, uh, I think, is distressing, well, it's just distressing for me, is that we ought to tremble one way or the other when a sermon is preached. Uh, because sermons ought to be personal. They ought to speak to us. They ought not to be just helpful hints for living. They ought to be the very words of life. Uh, and they ought to be put out in such a way that you do have the choice of whom this day you shall serve. And so I would much rather have somebody be angry with me than apathetic. I mean, if you've ever taken any lessons in sales, uh, if someone is fighting back as to why they don't want to buy your product, that, that you actually have a shot, right? You've got a shot at it, and you can actually formulate an argument in response. But if they just sort of say, yeah, you know, what do you say to, yeah, right? you don't say much of anything. I mean, you can continue to try to pre uh, put, press it home, but, uh, but it's not. But what really we see here in Felix are those who go away and never really want to come back and engage the message. And it might eat at them for a while, uh, but over time they, they hope that it dissipates and they put it in the backs of their minds. And so I hope that what we do as Christians is that we're ever putting the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, per, the person and work of Jesus Christ before uh, people all the time. Uh, before people all the time. Now, the thing about this, too, is that Paul was not preaching this uh, in isolation uh, because we see here that he was with Felix for a couple years. So time and time again, he was coming back to Felix and, and talking with him about things. Uh, and then after two years had elapsed, uh, what does it say? That Felix had his heart changed? No, uh, but Felix left Paul in prison. Uh, so that's where Paul's preaching uh, got him. It got him in prison and, of course, would ultimately get him to Rome uh, where he uh, would die. One of the things, I don't see a lot of Felixes necessarily uh, in the midst of ministering in the southeastern United States uh, per se, uh, but I do see a lot of, well, no, that's not true. I do see a lot of Felixes, and that is they hear the gospel and they say, you know what, let's talk about this later. Let's talk about this later. And how this typically manifests itself are people, they get out of college and they think, I kind of like Christianity, but you know what, I'll start going back to church when I get married and have kids because that's just kind of what you do. And I think that that's a pretty dominant theme uh, in our culture. Uh, why? Uh, because I think that Christianity has, again, been reduced to sort of a, of a crutch, a helpful hints for living, and they think that, you know, that's just kind of the thing to do. Or, I don't want to tell my kids about Christianity, so I'll farm that work out to the church, and hopefully they'll throw enough Christianity at them that it'll stick on my kids. Uh, well, that doesn't work. Um, trust me. Uh, my parents tried to do that, and it didn't stick, and it, it actually took someone being uh, very intentional in my life about discipling me and actually sharing the gospel time and time again, and that really can't be done on a Sunday-to-Sunday -Sunday basis. So 
Well, all I'd say about that is that we all have a lot of Felixes in our lives, and, uh, and I pray that it would be rooted in this kind of relationship that Paul had with Felix, not treating it in isolation, but actually minister to them and be willing to get personal and meet them where they are. Questions, comments, concerns? So you said um, worrying is praying to yourself, and then you mentioned trembling. Yeah. So if I'm, instead of worrying, if I pray to God about it, am I not still worrying? Right. <laughs> and what's the difference between worrying and trembling? Yeah, I would say that one's a holy fear. I do think, you know, maybe there's a healthy type of worry. I mean, maybe we call it worry when it's really not worry. So, for instance, if you get to a place where you realize that the situation is beyond your control and you realize that, that there's nothing you can do. You've worried yourself to death about it and you kind of come to the place where you realize, I don't know what else to do. And so even your worry has come to an end, not because of your holiness necessarily, uh, but because of your worriness. Uh, that, that you realize you can't worry the situation into reconciliation or resolution. So coming to a place where you really are able to give it over to God is less worry and I would say a holy fear and because that really requires a lot of trust. And it's not a complete, and to, look, it's not a trust without reservation because that's really fearful. I mean, I think about when, you know, when you first have a child and you're bringing them home from the hospital and the nurses say, time to go, you look at them like you're crazy, like, you're really going to let me take this thing out? Like, I mean, I've never done this before. It's weird. I don't really know what I'm doing. And then you have all these people visiting you and they want to hold the baby and you're like, ah, wash your hands, ah. So uh, even though you're handing the baby over to them, there's, there's still a part where because you love them, that you're still involved, but at the same time, ultimately, you check yourself and say, but their life is in God's hands. Consider the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. Uh, and, and God is, and it's not sort of sunshine and lollipops. It's actually a really hard thing to do to say, God, you have to take and work in this situation. But I, I, I realize I can't worry this into a good, right conclusion. And I would say that Peter's fear was trembling. That was a holy fear. He was not far off at, in his first initial encounter with Jesus. Uh, but it wasn't, that really wasn't worry as much as it was. He actually, sort of like Felix, all of a sudden but had been cut to the quick and was like, wait a minute, this is, I don't know what to do with this. Anything else? Someone in the back? All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.